welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. So look with me in Galatians chapter 4 and starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and as your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And setting the context of these few verses in Galatians, we see that the Apostle Paul is explaining our familial relationship with our God. And in this, Paul provides a succinct yet elegant statement on the Trinity. You probably heard it. You probably picked up on it as I was reading it. We see clearly the distinct persons of the Trinity. God sent forth His Son, and has sent the Holy Spirit of His Son. God the Son was sent forth from God the Father for the purpose of redeeming His elect through the atoning work of God the Son applied to us by God the Holy Spirit. In considering this text in redemptive history, John Calvin explains... To the Father is attributed the beginning of activity and the fountain and wellspring of all things. To the Son, wisdom, counsel, and the ordered disposition of all things. But to the Spirit is assigned the power and efficacy of that activity. Well, you and I, we oftentimes in just common vernacular, we refer to this as salvation, right? But our salvation is a glorious Trinitarian testimony which should lead us rightly to worship as the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Therefore, Christian worship is distinctly Trinitarian. The Puritan John Owen uh, wrote a book uh, which I will not tell you the, the title, but it's like three or four sentences long, which as any good sermon or book by a Puritan should be, right? Uh, But they didn't have tables of content, uh, contents then, so they would have these incredibly long uh, uh, book titles, sermon titles, but but they abbreviate it now, thank goodness, to of the Trinity, I believe it is, or of the Trinity or something like that. And in that, Owen says something very important to us and actually something very practical to us about worship, about God-centered worship. Here's what Owen says. He says, 
the proper and peculiar object of divine worship and invocation is the essence of God. In its infinite excellency, dignity, majesty. But then he goes on and says this. Now, this is common to all three persons and is proper to each of them. Not formally as a person, but as God blessed forever. All adoration respects that which is common to all. So that in each act of adoration and worship, all are to be adored and worshipped. In other words, we praise our one God by praising the Father who ordained our redemption and sent His only Son. We praise our one God by praising the Son who lived, died, and arose from the dead to accomplish our redemption. We praise our one God by praising the Holy Spirit for revealing Christ to us, for bringing us to spiritual life, for indwelling us to live in conformity to Christ. As our worship is grounded in who God is and what God has done, our worship then will include glorifying the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so this morning, I want us to worshipfully consider our passage today. In light of the person of the Trin- persons of the Trinity, and specifically their roles in our redemption, and I want to start with this. I want to start with the Father, from the Father. As they say, timing is everything, which is certainly the case in redemptive history. We oftentimes don't think about timing in redemptive history, do we? But we see it clearly in this passage, in the very first verse, in verse 4. As God is sovereign over all of time, in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth His Son. It was providentially the perfect time. It is as if things were filling up, filling up, filling up, and to full. That's the moment in time that God had designed perfectly for sending His Son. It was not a second too early. And it was not a second too late. What unfolded in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was orchestrated all in God's good timing. Think about that. Think about that. It's not as if Jesus woke up and said, you know, I'm thinking about being a prophet today. Carpentry, it's, it's, it's not a long-term gig. I'm, I'm thinking about, you, you know, getting a few disciples together. No. He is the eternal Son of God who was sent forth from God the Father at the precise moment in time. Exactly orchestrated. And I get frustrated at a stoplight. But he who ordains whatsoever comes to pass is not only sovereign over time, but he is sovereign over all things. Think about this with me. He is sovereign over time and the conditions 
of Christ's coming, including his conception within the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, I've thought about this before, and I'm sure you have too, but I suppose that God could have sent forth his son in a different way. But he didn't. He sent forth his son, he who is very God, a very God, to be made man, to be born of a woman, as our passage says. According to the sovereign plan of the Father, through the means of Mary, the sinless Son of God entered a world cursed by sin. But God did not ordain that He merely be born a man. But He also ordained that He was born specifically in a specific country. A specific people group. A specific religion. He was to be born a son of Israel. The people of the Mosaic Covenant. The people who are entrusted with the oracles of God. The people given God's law. And they were given God's law to live in obedience to it. Now the law, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, is holy and righteous and good. Because it comes from Him who is holy and righteous and good. God's law is a reflection of God's character. And so, think about this, He ordained that His Son be born under it to do what no Jew could do. Let me add, what no Gentile could do either. That is, to obey the law to perfection. God's purpose in all this Paul states clearly, was to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let that sink in. The Father's sovereign orchestration of redemptive history was not to provide a salvation option to be chosen or denied. God did not act so he could say, I've got a great idea. I'm going to create this plan of salvation. And then I'm going to leave it up to these sinners who have fallen from grace, who can do nothing right but sin over and over and over again. But I've got this system and, and maybe someone will buy into it. No, God didn't do that. You know what God, God did? God redeemed lawbreakers who could do nothing in and of themselves but sin. And he went to the slave market of sin and he bought us. And he bought us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then he said, and they're no longer slaves. He made us sons. He bought us from the slave market of sin for the purpose of a people. In love, Paul says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That's worthy of memorizing. He predestined us for that purpose 
to be His children. He did it through Christ. He did it according to His sovereign will, which He has guaranteed in us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of what He has done for us in Christ as our Father. If you are in Christ today, you are a child of God. And and just to chase this rabbit for just a moment, I want you to think about the privilege of that. Have you ever thought about it? I think we take it for granted that we can pray, Our Father who art in heaven. We've got it memorized. We pray it every Sunday. Have you ever considered what a privilege it is to to call God your Father? You know, not everyone can. Only the child of God can. Which is why the spirit-indwelled heart of his child cries, Abba, Father. The redundancy there is descriptive. The word Abba does not mean, nor has it ever meant Daddy. It's the Aramaic word for Father. In fact, you see it repeated over and over again, and it's repeated untranslated. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke as He cried out to His Father, repeated, and in essence by translation in the Greek and to us in English as Father. Crying out to His Heavenly Father, our Father in Heaven. And so, we can call Him Father, as only His child can do. Secondly, I want us to consider through the Son. We've looked at from the Father. I want us now to consider through the Son within this passage. You see, the Son of God was not created in Mary's womb. That's not His beginning. He is, as the Nicene Creed describes Him, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That is a beautiful orthodox statement of Christianity. He was then sent forth. God the Son of eternity was sent forth by God the Father from heaven to earth. Paul describes this to the Philippians, you know, in Philippians chapter 2. He describes this as like, hey, this is the ultimate picture of humility. God Almighty came to earth and became man. It doesn't get any lower than that. (laughs) He says that the Son emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Paul was writing to the Corinthians on this same topic. He says, Though He was rich, King of kings, Lord of lords, though He was rich, for our sake He became poor, so that we, by His poverty, might become rich. Of course, the poverty he encountered was far worse than material poverty, wasn't it? He who is holiness incarnate entered a world in rebellion against a holy God. 
He was born among a people who had been chosen by God. A people who had been called by God. A people, think about it, who had received the direct revelation from God Almighty. A people who had been given the holy and righteous and good law. And yet, they were a people whose hearts were far from Him. They were spiritually impoverished. The children of Israel were born under the law. But they would not. They could not keep it. But the Son could. But the Son could keep that which was impossible for the people of God to keep. And because Israel could not keep the law, nor any son or daughter of Adam, we became, as I described it just a minute ago, we became slaves to sin. The perfect standard of the law did not liberate us, but instead it condemned us. Leaving us in bondage. In the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul describes this kind, of, this kind of bondage. This being shackled to, quote, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind by nature, children of wrath. That's what I like to say whenever someone asks someone, so do you think everyone is a child of God? And a lot of times people will go, oh yes, of course, we're all children of God. Well then, why does... Scripture described people apart from Christ as children of wrath. Uh, yeah, that's what you were. That's what I was. We were children of wrath. But in Christ, we have become the children of God. Our only hope was that God the Father would send a Redeemer. One who would and could redeem us from the slavery, our slavery to sin. I love this catechism question that asks, who is the redeemer of God's elect? Who is the redeemer of God's elect? Do you remember the answer to that catechism question? It is beautiful. Quote, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be, God and man, in two distinct natures, and one person forever. That is so good. That is so true. And through Christ's humility, in His accomplishing our redemption, the only Son of God made you and I sons. Some scholars believe that Paul uses the, the word sons here to convey the idea of the heir, the oldest son, not the other siblings, not the other sons or daughters, but the son is the heir. And in this sense, if that is the case, then we are heirs, just like we were born as the firstborn son. What Christ is by nature, we became by grace. Martin Luther said, there is no slavery in Christ, only sonship. It was no slip of the tongue that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, He referred to His disciples then as brothers. He cried out, Abba, Father. And then He taught us to do the same. I like to think of it as like an older Sibling, an older brother to a newly adopted sibling. 
coming alongside and saying, that's what we call Him. That's what we call Him. He's our Father. And then finally, I want us to look by the Spirit. I want us to look at the Spirit within this passage. We've looked at from the Father through the Son, now by the Holy Spirit. And in the Nicene Creed, we confess that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And because He is, you may recall that I quoted Calvin earlier, who said that the Holy Spirit is assigned the power and the efficacy of God's redeeming activity. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who applies what God the Father has ordained, what God the Son has accomplished. Or to paraphrase John Murray, right? Some of you have read Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. God the Father ordains, God the Son accomplishes, God the Holy Spirit applies. Therefore, we see the Holy Spirit active throughout our redemption In fact, in reading just these few verses, you may say, well, where's the Holy Spirit active in this? I see that He's given at the end to the sons of God, but where's the Holy Spirit in this passage? Well, let's look at the text. Look at with me. When God sent forth His Son, born of the woman, it was the Holy Spirit who came to her. Remember what the angel said? And the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The eternal Son of God was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. The law that the Son was born under, the law that He fulfilled, the word that He confirmed was given by whom? Scripture says it is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The redemption accomplished by the Son is applied to us. How is it applied? It is applied by the Holy Spirit, by working faith in us, thereby uniting us with Christ. All of this is the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby we we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And the confirmation of this reality is the Holy Spirit through whom we are enabled, we are empowered to cry out, Abba, Father. I love the way that F.F. Bruce describes this. He says, Abba is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus on the lips of His people. (laughs) And so it is the Holy Spirit who leads us in God-centered worship. And so having looked at what God the Father has done what God the Son has done, what God the Holy Spirit is doing in our redemption. I want you to think about this. Theologian Robert Latham says, the nature of our response in worship is to be shaped by the reality of the one we worship. And I'm going to read that again. You don't want to miss this. Think about what he just said. The nature of our response in worship Because worship is a response, right? We're responding to what God has done. The nature of our response in worship is to be shaped by the reality of the one we worship. That'll tell you a lot about modern worship, won't it? We worship God the Father 
who chose us and ordained our redemption, who sent and gave His only Son for us, who sent His Spirit that we might know we are His children, that we might call Him Father. We worship God the Son, who became flesh, lived in obedience to the law, suffered and died for us and for our sin, who resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is even interceding for us at this very moment. We worship God the Holy Spirit, who gives us life, who gives us faith, sanctifying us from within and empowering us to live in conformity to Christ. And as we worship God for who He is and what He has done, to paraphrase Gregory Nazanius, we worship with one act of adoration the one undivided Trinity. And as we have received from and through and by God, we respond in worship by the Holy Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. This is, this is Christian worship. This is how we worship. Not just on this day in which the theme of the service has been the Trinity. Not just on this day where we're emphasizing the Trinity and the preached Word and so forth and so on. But all of our services, the theme is driven by our triune God. And I want you to think about it today. On the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In which... We feed upon Christ, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but in faith, by the Holy Spirit. We come to the Lord's table. How do we come to the Lord's table? We don't come marching up to tell God all the things that we've done, all the things that we've merited. No, we, we come as sinners. We say, Lord, I am not worthy to even eat at your table, and yet you have invited me. The Holy Spirit, then, is the one who helps us in our weakness, showing us and giving us Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. And it's in this communion, as we sometimes call it, by the Spirit, through the Son, that we share in His access to the Father. As we come to the table together, this is a communal meal. We do this as a family, not in isolation, but together. We give thanksgiving to God the Father, through God the Son, by the Holy Spirit. It is a meal of thanksgiving. The oldest name of the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which is thanksgiving. This is a meal of thanksgiving. How can it not be? My goodness, we come to the table to give God thanksgiving. God the Father for the gift of redemption. God the Son, who is God's gift to the world. Thanksgiving for the Holy Spirit who gives us new life and provides a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. Glory be to God the Father and the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Glory be to you, O Father everlasting who did send your only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Glory be to you, O Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Glory be to you, O Holy Spirit, 
who does enliven us together and with Christ and does shed abroad his love in our hearts, blessed be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, and blessed be your glorious name forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.